Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Oh, we are live. We're live. Hi, Matt. Love it. Good morning. Welcome to... I'm I'm amazing. (laughs) Especially, especially amazing because... You know what we're doing right now? We're podcasting, man. We're podcasting episode 24 of Undersampled Radio. How's that for an organic introduction that I'm derailing right now? That was pretty good. Yeah, Our best one ever. So um, we are on episode 24. I'm getting pretty excited because we're nearing a quarter century. And I think I mentioned that last episode, but uh, deal with it. I'm going to mention it again. Especially. Oh, we should have uh, confetti next episode. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you I hear- don't know. I don't, I don't really believe in these arbitrary base 10 milestones. Don't yeah, really buy that. Why not? It's our, gold, it's our uh, silver birthday. Whatever, man. I'm looking forward to episode 32. <laughs> okay. Noted. Um, you, you're buying the confetti then in that case. <laughs> hey, did you hear that uh, your friends at the European Space Agency um, shot a probe to Mars? <laughs> well, yeah, but didn't, didn't they shoot it into Mars? Didn't they? <laughs> yeah, no one really knows. Well, half of it's still okay. Half of it's orbiting and sending okay. data. Yeah. Um, it's just the other half kind of went dark. Um, yeah, I, 50%, that's not even a 2-2. Well, I mean, 50% on Earth is, is crappy, but 50% on Mars is pretty impressive, I think. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, the, I put a link in the show notes to the um, hand-wavy ESA plan to build a lunar habitat because I'm pretty psyched about a moon base. <laughs> yeah? You know, take a little vacation up to the moon? What was... So, I... I... I guess I just don't pay very much attention, but uh, today was the first time I'd heard of this um, this mission. Do you know what ExoMars is? Uh, I'm specifically no, no, no idea. Okay. Oh, okay. Also, moving on then. <laughs> Good. Uh, the link is in the notes. Check it out. SEG was awesome, uh, ish. Uh, Matt wasn't there. Um, Were you there though? I was there in spirit. Uh, my schedule was uh, hijacked by meetings, um, but uh, it was lovely. You can read that. Oh, actually, I don't even have a link, but you know where the abstracts are. You can read them. Wait, so hang on. Did, did, did you go to Dallas or not? Yeah. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Lovely. Okay. Did you go to any talks? <laughs> yes, but barely. I walked around the exhibition floor briefly. It was... Um, it was nice. I think I'd like to do another show on sort of like highlights of the conference, but it's probably not the best one to do this year. So, whatever. Fair um, enough. I, I felt a little bit. I seem to. I don't know. I seem to get a lot of emails and um, DMs on Twitter and stuff about uh, asking me if I was there and could we meet up. And so I kind of really felt bad, uh, I suppose, about not not being there and you know seeing uh, Maitri's tweets and the the hand the very small handful of people who actually use social media at the uh, <laughs> the event um, made me 
miss it a little bit. I still have no desire to go to Dallas, um, but yeah, I, I suppose I. Anyway, we'll make up for it next year. I think it's in Houston next year, right? So, yeah. Also, not all that appealing, but still, probably show up next year. So, uh, and I, I think, by the way, is as a footnote, I, I'm also still toying with um, EAG in Paris and a hackathon there. So, if anyone's listening in Europe and wants to, and that gets excited about that and would like maybe to help. Um, figure it out, especially if you're in Paris or in France uh, and or speak French really well. I could probably use some help finding caterers and venues and that kind of thing if indeed we do go ahead. So, and or have a sweet flat in downtown Paris for, with a guest bedroom for Matt. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Side note. Um, I actually want to introduce our guests today mm. before we do our little notes and stuff uh, because I think that he, well, certainly my notes, he knows more than I do about what I've written there. And uh, this, there's a paper that's really cool, and I think he'll, he'll, he'd like to chime in on that. So without further ado, our guest today is Tim Hopper. He has an awesome blog, which is linked in the show notes. Um, his website's pretty extensive. He's got, he's on Twitter and LinkedIn and all this stuff. Um, seriously, uh, rivals Matt's blog. You got to do a better job, Matt. Uh, Tim, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. Do I have theme music or anything that, that welcomes me? No, no, <laughs> no confetti either, uh, but uh, we'll work on it. Um, music. Yeah, so Tim is a, is a data scientist um, at Distill Networks. Uh, it looks, I don't know Tim, I've just stalked him on the internet for the past few weeks. Uh, it looks like he is uh, man, a renaissance man, varied interests um, outside of the... Short attention span is, is another way of putting that. <laughs> That's right. um, what, kind of, uh, what kind of data science do you do, Tim? Uh, at the moment, Distill Networks is a, a cybersecurity company. We provide a, uh, a product to typically large websites to block um, malicious web traffic. So our, it's our belief that a large percentage of traffic on the internet, meaning things making HTTP requests are um, malicious bots. Malicious maybe meaning people trying to scrape content off your website or um, do DDoS attacks or various things. So I'm on the research team and it's our mission to uh, improve our product and find um, malicious bots in an automated fashion. Um, largely based on just what we can see from incoming HTTP requests. That's fascinating. I, I, so do, do you know roughly what percentage of traffic it, it is, or is it just a completely, it's like dark matter? Uh, I, I, I should know more off the top of my head, but so we publish a report each year that we um, call the bot report. That's like a, an industry white paper kind of thing. And, it's something like 20 to 40% of traffic we think is, is malicious traffic. So there's also non-malicious bots. So like a Google bot, um, mm. for example, Google's constantly scraping the whole internet and you want that to happen, but you don't want your competitor to come and scrape all your price data, for example. Um, and it, it happens at <clears throat> extremely uh, large scales. And so people often, uh, 
many companies like e-commerce companies and things have internal teams that try and detect it. Uh, but it's, it's an incredibly varied world of complexity uh, of how those things happen. And it's a very fast moving target because I mean, they're all computer systems, but they all have people behind them. And so things are, people are responding to defense yeah. and changing their means of attack, but yeah, right. No, I just like you know, as I was a bit of a, a laggard, I guess, and in terms of being an, a web publisher of any kind. But and I think probably everyone, well, depending on the platform you're using, uh, but many people who start a blog, or in my case, the first thing I did on the web was started a wiki. It's it's my it's like a complete revelation and mind blowing how you just get spam from day right, one. Exactly. It, 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 and and at first you're like, who, who are these people posting about Gucci handbags? What what a waste of time! Like who's got time for that? And then you gradually realize, oh no, this is just software. <laughs> and uh, right, yeah. And so it, and there's uh, and people actually do end up clicking those links. So if you can do it at large enough scale, you can skim hmm. off the the margins of people who do that. Um, and, and so that you know it's annoying for people who have a blog on the side, but for businesses, it's potentially cuts into their revenue. Mm. Um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, if nothing else, there is a sense in which every request someone makes, an HTTP request, you click on a link, it, it's a cost to the business, right? Because they have to have a server. Um, so yeah. if you have 40% 40, 40 of your traffic is pointless, maybe you could cut down your hardware by 40%, which is, you know already starts to make sense. So it's a big incentive for people. Um, and so that, this is a relatively new world of, um, computer security to me I've been doing this for about a year uh, and it's it's fascinating but I think we've already derailed off your uh, announcement that you're trying to get to talking about how exciting my life is <laughs> yes your life sounds very exciting and I'd like to know more about why it is how do you guys how do you guys do this how do you, I mean what's the overall gist of 40% of HTTP requests um, so we we do it uh, there are a number of levels to how we do it. So um, there are aspects of it that, uh, I mean, on occasion, for, for certain things, you can just like identify IP addresses or various things that you get from requests and you can blacklist certain things. But so we try to move beyond that, but certainly clients still need that kind of thing. Um, we um, use JavaScript to get various uh, to, to execute code in people's browsers, which that sounds malicious in itself, but everyone who's running a browser is executing JavaScript. But so um, uh, there are various like somewhat uh, heuristic tests that you can use with JavaScript to identify malicious users. And then our clients get to tune how they use our product, like to, to decide, you know, what, what level that they want to, to block at, and then also how they respond to certain things. So they get, they can just outright block things, or they could then show you a captcha if they think you're a suspect, or they can just monitor the traffic they think is malicious. Our team, it, our team's task is, um, so there's this whole initial level of how our product works using kind of JavaScript and more kind of domain knowledge of um, how browsers work and and why things might be malicious. So, or for example, um, some some clients don't want uh, anyone using um, 
like something like Selenium or, or a, a system where it's like uh, a scriptable browser, basically. Um, and they can just block all of that. So, but our team then gets all the incoming request data that we have from our clients, meaning we have a, a row in a database for every HTTP request uh, coming um, on our clients' websites. And we sort of see that as a more of an abstract data problem. And here's this like somewhat messy data set. Can we identify um, patterns that are uh, malicious? And uh, the challenge for us is that there's a, a, a gap of, of training data because often we don't really know what is actually behind things. And, and uh, a, a lot of companies that do like fraud related things you can um, sort of identify things that appear to be suspicious, and then you can escalate that to do a fraud investigation. And so over time, you're like building up um, more certainty. Uh, and we can do that to some level. We have a team that helps with that. But um, the, the nature of web requests is it's like very um, ephemeral. Someone makes a request, and then it, they might never make a request again, and you might know nothing about that system ever again or people can change the appearance of their you can manipulate almost everything that a web browser returns because i mean uh, at some at some level http is just like uh exchanging text documents and so you could go and change whatever you how you want to exchange that um so we try and work around that for on a variety of ways and then devise um uh like find find various ways that we can identify patterns that we see as as being problematic and then giving our clients and our support staff the ability to block based on those things yeah that's it's, fas it's fascinating i mean it's uh you know that many uh companies uh back in the in the bronze age of the 90s did the thing where it was sort of brute forcey build this database as you say and manually pick and choose things but uh it's interesting to know that those databases now are being learned on i guess by some deep learning algorithms you guys yeah 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 so i mean there's still um like for email spam you can you can buy like um, basically lists of IP addresses that you should just block all email coming from those IP addresses. Um, and I mean, the other thing people have done for many years is display CAPTCHAs. And, and our product is essentially an alternative to a CAPTCHA. And what we're trying to say is don't inconvenience your users by making yep. them jump through some hoop, but let's just do that automatically. Um, and we have a strong belief also that CAPTCHAs are actually really terrible. And there's evidence behind that. I mean, Google has shown they can block, they can write um, programs to block their own capture or to clear their own captures at like a ninety over a ninety nine percent success rate or something. Pretty good. It's That's pretty good. It, it makes me. Uh, the, you, you mentioned um, the difficulty of having good labels because you don't necessarily know what what is malicious. Um, it strikes me that you could, instead of blocking known bad IPs, just use them, see what they do. On, I, I guess you could divert them to some system that that didn't matter essentially, and and use that behavior. So, do you try to learn from known? Uh, yeah, we groups? do. Yeah, so that I mean that's a, a big part of what we do, um, mm. and we're currently in discussions of. Uh, 
doing even more of that where we're thinking about like can you can you take the risk of occasionally letting a malicious actor through hmm. to then like monitor their behavior and use that as as more training data and more kind of um experimental design sort of but the challenge is uh i mean um a challenge is we have zero control over someone making repeat requests. So for a given website, um, the the mode number of requests, um, or probably even the, the median number of requests that someone make is, is one, right? So someone clicks on a link and they load your website and then you never see them again. And then it has this enormous tail where mm -hmm. some computer will make like 100,000 requests in a, a certain time area period or something. But um, that becomes very hard if you want to think about uh, you know, designing. You, you, there's no, basically no way to, to ensure that anyone that you want to look at is going to ever come back again. Right. And so it's, and, and you, you have no, you have no knowledge of that whatsoever. Like you can't, you have no idea what's happening behind that uh, IP address as to what's going on as to whether or not someone will ever be seen again. Um, so even thinking, you know, of, uh, of routing people into sample groups or something, you're um, all, all, almost immediately biasing the way you do that because you're looking at people who make multiple requests. So we also want to make, there are also malicious actors who only make one request and we want to, to block them, but, but you can't monitor their behavior over time because it, it just happens once. So it's very, very complex and a lot of moving parts. And uh, <laughs> after a year of, of working at this company, I'm starting to get some sense of, of how hard the problem is. And uh, all my idealism of, of a year ago is having to be converted to reality of now. Yeah, that really, really feels like a feature of data science is <laughs> Is this sort of early promise of all the awesome tasks there are to to try, and then the realization gradually that things are just a total nightmare and <laughs> the data's a mess and yeah, the problem's yeah. really hard. Uh, and this huge, you know, I I really value my academic learning, and I think the preparation is really helpful. But but when you're in school, you get really deceived and maybe no one's fault, but into thinking the way things are presented in the textbook are going to be how you actually apply them and it ends up for so many reasons, uh, that not being the case. I mean, you know, for us is a lack of training data and then the reality of deploying something like this at scale. Um, so when you're looking at, at thousands and thousands of, uh, data points coming to you every second, how do you, how do you deploy a model on that? Uh, yeah. That isn't going to fall apart. Um, and and how you, do you validate these things over time and, and all this is right, right. And and you you already mentioned another kind of unique feature that you have to deal with that in geoscience we we don't have to worry about because we you know we're also concerned with anomaly detection sometimes on quite small samples and sometimes without a lot of label data, um, but our targets aren't in a sort of um, evolutionary way or a, or, a, or a quantum way, they don't respond to our efforts to detect them. 
like like your targets do. Like there's an actual cat and mouse right. uh, arms race going on. Yep. That means you can't necessarily use data from three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nightmare. <laughs> it's a very cool problem. It's my so, my little zinger that I was saving for you guys is that I worked my first job out of grad school. I worked at a government contractor and wrote. Um, I ended up. I was hired as a data scientist, and they had nothing for me to do. And I ended up uh, working on um, a um, environmental mine modeling software for BPA for uh, uh, six months or so. Um, Zing! Develop developing the UI and uh, and doing horrific uh, modeling of like. Uh, so it's like uh, surface mining in West Virginia. So they you take all these core samples to measure the various um, uh, whatever wh whatever things are in rocks, acidity, and all this various stuff. And then we tried to like interpolate. And I knew nothing about uh, any kind of geo modeling. And uh, I'm horrified at the thought that someone might actually be using that software to make real life decisions <laughs> at this point. I hope that's not the case. Yeah, we all are. I mean, we're doing. We're all doing the same thing. They tell us where. Oh, where should we drill for oil? We just throw that dart at the map, and that's it. No, but actually, I I feel like that raises an interesting point. Actually, um, because uh, I was chatting to someone yesterday about this. How um, you know we're working with a guy at the moment who's just graduated uh, in astrophysics, and he's helping us with the data science project that we're working on. And, and he has really no domain knowledge at all in geoscience, right? He doesn't really know what the problem is or anything about rocks or the data that he's handling. And um, that's kind of a feature as well as a bug, right? Because he can just look at the data as data. He's unencumbered by this kind of the, the, the mishmash of um, caveats and uh, yep. all that background. Um, but but you know, sometimes we'll get together and chat about the data, and he has these like, oh right, okay, everything I've done is completely invalid because right. <laughs> I didn't know about that physical kind of constraint on the system. So I, I, right. I mean, there's a lot to be said for having domain experts work with non-domain experts. I think in data science, because yeah, yeah, got these different views. Absolutely, that's something we uh, deal with and kind of think about a lot in our company because our team is um, non-domain experts. There are three of us and we have kind of varied engineering backgrounds and then um, we have another team that aren't that are we call them analysts and they're not we don't call them data scientists but in many ways they are but they have like this deep domain knowledge of how browsers work and how internet protocols work and even how malicious actors behave on the internet. And so we are kind of try to Figure out how those thing, two things mesh together, um, and we've made a lot of headway. And I do think, yeah, I, I think that can be an extremely valuable um, tool, even uh, as long as you, you know, you say unencumbered by all these various things, but that you know, you could also be unencumbered by nuances that people have learned about a certain thing over many years. <laughs> Just looking at, for example, geodata, you know, you have all these. You know, thinking about your data having the, the geospatial correlations that someone who just looks at a raw data set, that maybe isn't going to be obvious to them. 
Sure. You have to take that into account. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. So I guess then it just comes down to how many of those things are valid and how, and are any of them, because I think some of them are, um, you know, they're spurious. Uh, they're, or, or they're limitations that we that we see that, that really aren't, maybe aren't there, you know. Or, I, I don't know, it's an age-old discussion really, in, in especially in geophysics, about whether you, to the, the extent to which you're prepared to sort of brute force insight from the data, or, or should the insight only come from known physical relationships? Right. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very, um, that translates directly into, into my own experience outside of geophysics. Uh, so let's, let me just uh, give, distill a little plug here uh, and say, so what, what kind of deliverables do you guys have? Is it all service-based or is there an interface like uh, for doing reporting or tuning parameters on your Yeah, so both. So, I mean, largely it's a service. Um, so our clients' web traffic gets routed either through their own hardware that we install our platform on um, or through our like hosted um, system. And we, for those who know, we basically act as like a reverse proxy, kind of a load balancer. So um, the, the internet requests that are made, the, the DNS just gets routed to us. And so people don't, you know, making the request don't actually know that unless they're doing like a trace route or something to try to detect that. Um, and then that uh, there's also each client has a an online dashboard where they can do exactly tuning and monitoring and various things. And our hope is you know to make it as hands off as possible. Um, but uh, people do have various questions and various things. Um, thankfully, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't uh, interact with clients or do the support at that level or anything. So. Um, I, I largely get to ignore that. <laughs> good, good. And how many, how many um, Russian hackers do you have working at the company? <laughs> like, I always feel like cybersecurity, you guys must hire actual malicious programmers, no? Yeah, so that's funny. This, uh, the, the team that I was just describing that has this domain knowledge, uh, we actually did a, like an aqua hire of a, a team, and they're, they're based in Stockholm, and... Um, but that uh, they're not all—they're all European. They're not all um, Swedish, but they—they um, they really do. So when they uh, when we were looking into hiring or to buying this company, um, one of their analysts basically. Sh so we some of our leadership went over to do like due diligence, and one of their analysts like sat down at a computer and showed how he could just like work around our whole system um, and they do various they're they're really amazing like they just uh, they look at a computer system or any you know interface or something and they just start to think like how could how could someone uh, you know manipulate the vulnerabilities of the system uh, which you know and some those of us who have enjoyed computers for a long time think always think about that on some level but they like think about this in, like 10x the way that I've yeah. ever been able to think about it. Uh, you should have known me in my former life. <laughs> um, I want to change tacks a little bit here and um, ask you about something that Matt is an expert in and actively uh, pushes at his uh, audience on the internet, which is uh, openness of 
projects and data and specifically the aim to not only make things open but to make things accessible. So on Tim's website, he has a video and he has a blog post about uh, making open projects mean something by uh, making them beautiful, basically. And um, why don't you touch on that a little bit? I mean, why, why does it matter? I mean, if I put all my stuff up on the internet for free, isn't that good enough? Yeah. Um, so uh, that the context of that is, I just gave this talk. At, we had a Pi Data Carolinas here. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we we hosted this Pi Data conference for the first time. Um, and and the angle of my talk was was largely um, trying to encourage people who are in kind of the data science realm that they should be more proactively uh, sharing things and the. the the emphasis of my talk was really for their own benefit, not really for the the benefit of having the the knowledge out there. But you know, I, that was that's not the whole story. Um, but uh, my own experience is like I tinkered on all kinds of interesting things for the last fifteen years of my life, and uh, all through grad school, like you know, I, I was uh, like many a curious grad student, and so I would uh, instead of working on my schoolwork, you know pull down some data set and look at it or or do these interesting side projects or you know write some Mathematica script to do some interesting computation and then that just it never went anywhere beyond that um, and my encouragement to people is uh, you you can do well for yourself by not being quite so humble about that and like make those things available um, to the world but at, at the same time as you alluded to, you can't just like go post a script online on a GitHub gist or something with zero context and zero instruction and zero example like that. No one's going to look at that, right? Typically, um, and so what what I was encouraging people to do and what I've tried to do in my own life is think about you know how to present yourself and how to to make that um, more accessible to people. And so selfishly, you know, hopefully that makes uh, me an attractive candidate when someone is wanting to hire me. Um, and but, you know, I, 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 there's a clear double benefit there because you're making something available and other people are actually it's not just recruiters who are going to look at that and benefit. But you know, my entire life uh, depends on uh, software that Often, you know, many things in the Python space started as someone's side project when they're in grad school or something like, I mean, <clears throat> NumPy and SciPy are all, you know, Travis Oliphant's kind of side project as an academic. And I use IPython notebooks all the time. And that's, that was like Fernando Perez doing that as a, as a side project as a grad student and now uh, has become something I'm using every day. Um, and, uh, so I, and the other angle of that is I, I think those those who don't really have very formal training or experience in kind of the software world don't no one ever teaches you how to share things and how to make your code usable by other people because those you know those of us who are who are learning to program in the classroom but not really in 
kind of a software development oriented thing, you're learning from your professors and they have definitely no idea how to, to share code uh, with people. Um, so all that to say, I, I think everyone can win uh, when we do this. And uh, I, I just, I it fell through, but I uh, was recently asked by um, some Duke computer science students to come speak to them on the same um, topic. Cause they, you know, at, here at Duke, which is a, a leading institution and has some world-class computer science research going on there that the students there feel like they aren't really getting practical skills, like how to, how to share things and how to interact with people. Uh, and it, you know, the internet's really just revolutionized that not to be cliche, but revolutionized the way that we can share code. And, uh, I guess in summary, I think, you know, it's worth doing well and worth thinking beyond just the code, but thinking about kind of self marketing in a little bit. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's really important work and that really resonates with me. This, uh, what you said that no one teaches you how to share things. Um, so absolutely see that in the geosciences as well, where we badly need it. I mean, you know, you could could argue that there's, there's so many people sharing awesome stuff in tech that I, I feel like, you know, I, I already can't keep up. <laughs> um, in geoscience, there's a real dearth of um, kind of both, you know, openly available and just sort of discoverable and sort of documented stuff. And yep. I think... You know, the tools are one thing, and things like GitHub are, you know, just in, in, incredible, uh, powerful uh, tools. But there's also a thing, there's something about the cultural side and getting over, I guess, getting over that humility that you were talking about. There's a lot of people I talk to about blogging or even putting their stuff on GitHub, um, which to you and I kind of feels like uh, just a thing that you do. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't keep track of my own stuff if I wasn't using these tools, right? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't keep track of my own. It's, part, it's as much for me as anyone. But um, they, they sort of say, oh, no one's going to be interested in my stuff. Or they're even afraid, like just downright worried about being judged or, uh, you know, being hated on or whatever it is. Right. Like, what, what, what would you say to people in that sort of situation who feel like, oh, I... I don't want to put my stuff out there. Yeah, well, uh, you know, so I had, a, I had a tweet about this uh, a year or two ago that uh, the idea basically being that we say this like, oh, no one's going to be interested in that. Well, at the same time, many of us spend half our days Googling to find people who talked about some really obscure thing and wanting to have like some concise and clear explanation of this very obscure thing. And then like, in the same sentence, almost, we're saying, like, oh, but no one's going to be interested in my, like, really obscure thing. You know, I, one of my most read blog posts is I was working on PySpark a few years, or with PySpark a few years ago, and there's this aggregate by key function, and I thought the documentation was unclear. So I just, like, sat down one morning. I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out an example of really how this thing works, just because it, it, it's just a little bit convoluted. And so I wrote up this blog post, just a short example of how PySpark aggregate by key works. And it's my like second or third most, <laughs> I think third most popular blog post, right? Um, and yeah, so it just, you know, I, I think uh, 
at some level, it's just getting people over the absurdity of saying, well, there are 7 billion people in the world and there are at least like five other people who are probably interested in this <laughs> thing that you're interested in or have this problem that you're... And so, uh, if nothing else, do them the courtesy of, of uh, not making them go through the same frustration you went to figure something out or um, or something like that. Um, not, you know, so that there's there's both the self-promotion, but there's the, the goodwill aspect. I, I just gave a presentation uh, at our, our local data science meetup uh, two nights ago on latent Dirichlet allocation, which is um, – Bayesian model for text analysis. And uh, the whole motivation for my presentation, I was telling the organizer of the group, like the whole motivation is I found the resources out there on this topic so painful that in some weird way, like that gives me the desire to like let other people have less pain. Like I, maybe some people like have that experience and then they want to and like, oh, you have to be annoyed too because I was annoyed. But like, I, <laughs> I, I, I guess I just think like it doesn't have to be this way. Like, it doesn't have to be as confusing as academic literature makes it, or or something like that. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, half the things I write, I think I'm really writing to myself in the past. Like, I'm, I wish yeah. I'd read this. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, we you people see on Twitter all the time, people like. Uh, stumble on their own answers on Stack Overflow. <laughs> that they, they're confused about something, and they found out they had answered it three years ago. Uh, I just saw someone had was like started to respond in a comment to something on Stack Overflow and realized he was responding to himself from like, <laughs> you're, right? you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so and you're then, either writing to yourself in the past or you're writing to yourself in the yeah, future. Yeah, <laughs> and I, you know, I don't want to minimize the, it does take time to do this kind of thing, right? And there, there are oh, lots yeah. of things I pass over that I should be documenting or, or something. Um, but uh, uh, I, you know, I, I want people to know that it, it, it really is valuable. It's valuable for other people. It's going to be valuable for themselves. And at the same time in this, this presentation I gave um, at, at PyData, also trying to give people a little bit of direction as to how to do this. Because when I was a grad student six years ago, I just, you know, GitHub is kind of second nature to me now. But at the time, I was so confused as like, what's the difference between Git and GitHub? And what's the, mm -hmm. what's the relationship between my repositories locally and what's there and, you know, these things. Uh, and I just didn't know what to do. And I think that actually is for, for grad students, oftentimes they just, there's a sincere lack of, of knowledge and they're, you know, trying to do their own things in school and learn this stuff at the same time. But I, I think it's worth it. Um, and another important aspect of this is uh, these same kind of principles end up being valuable as you work in a company too, right? So um, even if you're not sharing things publicly, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a joke to say, oh, I'm just going to whip up this script real quick and it doesn't matter how I write it because no one's going to ever see it except for me. Like the, that's like famous last words. Like as soon as you say that, it's going to be something the company depends on forever. <laughs> um, and, and so thinking about, you know, how you could then document things internally and present things well internally is such a, uh, important thing. And that's something my team thinks about a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, amongst our own team and then amongst our, our own company. Uh, and, and these days, the tools that you use for that are pretty much the same. I mean, it's GitHub, right? Or, 
all these similar kinds of tools is the same you're using in the broader space. So the, there's a lot of translation between those things. Yeah, right. No, I think that um, that kind of writing to your past self or future self, it sort of extends in a way to a lot of a lot of stuff that we do. Like we do a lot of work with the government, and I'm constantly railing at them to get better at open data and um, managing things like their code bases, d d not necessarily for anyone else, but just for themselves. <laughs> like just you know. Um, just for your own, uh, I mean, like you say, it, anything else is a waste of effort. It's a waste of yeah. human uh, yeah. sort of ingenuity and time to solve these problems over and over again. But organizations, especially like individuals, maybe have some level of tolerance. But organizations have this sky-high level of tolerance for that kind of just erosive. Um, loss of capacity, <laughs> you know, that kind of just creeping inefficiencies that they'll just tolerate for years and years and years. And if you added it up, it's probably the same as that 40% of malicious web traffic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, There's it, a real cost to it. Yeah, but it's, it's sort of invisible. Or it's like tiny pinpricks, you know, it's like annoying, but... So we need, we need a class, Tim. We need a class, man, like a uh, uh, best practices in open sharing something. Yeah, do you teach? I, I I remember reading something on your website or something like that about you used to teach uh, math classes. I think. Yeah. Are you, so are you teaching anything these days? I'm not, but um, I taught calculus th through grad school, and and I really actually I really love teaching, um, and I try to give talks on occasion because I I enjoy. Um, yeah, I just really enjoy it, and I I, I think it's a valuable thing. Um, I, I, I'm finding it increasingly hard to do a whole lot of technical things on top of my, my job, just cause I want to spend time with my wife and be outside and, and <laughs> so I'm less and less motivated at this point to really do a lot of things. But in the future, I could imagine, uh, if I had the flexibility doing more instruction on the, these kind of topics, I would love even to. You know, I'm, I went to NC State, which is here in Raleigh, um, and I would love even to the future to have an adjunct position to tell computer science students things I wish I had known 20 years ago, that kind of thing. I, you know, because uh, I, you know, I, this is a whole other issue, but there, there, there is a real lack of uh, your professors are not the ones, for the most part, to teach you these kind of things. They just, you know, it's changing a little bit, but for the most part, your professors don't know these things. Um, and, you know, I was, I was emailing C++ files and Python files back and forth to my advisor in grad school. Like, that's the only way he wanted to Oof. deal with it. So, uh, <laughs> Um, well, cool. We, we, we look forward to um, the, um, the future uh, Tim Hopper uh, data science-y open sharing professional development course. <laughs> Sounds great. I look forward to that, too. I might benefit. <laughs> hey, have you guys heard of Termix? It is a Linux emulator for uh, Android. Uh, my goodness. It's lovely. I just started playing with this thing. One of the oh, uh, I don't know if we told you this, Tim, but we've got it. And this is a, another good shameless plug. We've got a uh, 
forum, a Slack instance uh, that's sort of co-syndicated with this podcast called the Software Underground, where we have a bunch of um, software people and geo people and people of various scientific disciplines uh, talking about whatever random things they're interested in. One of the people on there uh, was discussing this this Termix app and uh, I started playing with it and I can't I can't get enough. It's amazing. You can just I mean you can use your phone and log in to you know just SSH into your uh, Amazon web service instances and do work like actual work from your cell phone. It is lovely. Nothing like the ability to keep working everywhere you go. <laughs> Well, also nothing like the ability to like check something when you don't have your laptop on hand. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm I am a horrible, horrible case of like work on the bus ride to X or whatever. You know, it's all all the time, but uh, it just makes it accessible if you don't have to take your laptop everywhere. It's kind of nice. There's a there's a really good. Uh, so I, I'm on iPhone and uh, I think it's called Prompt. It's a a terminal emulator on the iPhone that I, I've used similarly in the past. Um, SSH into DigitalOcean. Yeah. For me, it's mostly been more of a novelty that, like, oh, this is possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited about it, and I'm hoping I don't, I guess, waste too many hours of my day screwing around with things for my cell phone. But um, <laughs> anyway, I want to <laughs> let me just wrap up with a quick question here. <laughs> a nice, easy question to answer. Are, uh, are humans going to kill ourselves before the AIs take over? <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I certainly live in the, uh, the skeptical camp of, of AI doomsday. Although the Tesla announcing self-driving cars yesterday, maybe it's, it's coming, but, uh, so, so I guess that would make the answer yes, because that that puts puts out the uh, AI takeover quite in the future, and uh, <laughs> humans aren't doing so well. So, <laughs> Matt, uh, no, I I think it'll be the AIs. You think so? Yeah. Okay, Skynet, <laughs> Skynet. Um, good. Well, I'm glad that we solved that. Uh... <laughs> it was a much easier. Uh, than I thought. Yeah, um, no problem, no problem. Tim, <laughs> thanks for joining us on the show, man. I, I very much appreciate you uh, reaching out. Um, we will be back, not next week, uh, but the week after that with what, Matt? What episode? Huh? 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 Uh, what is it, like 25 or something like that? <laughs> I, I, uh, I applaud you celebrating 25 episodes. I just saw my calendar that in about a year, I'm going to be celebrating a billion seconds of life, and I'm planning to throw myself a party. So Nice. See, that is getting with the program, Matt. Uh, Tim, you want a job? Matt, you're fired. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks again, Tim Hopper. Come and join us on episode 24. You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. See you, everybody, next, next week. Bye.